Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Joshua, chapter 5? Now, once again, as we come to Joshua, chapter 5, the children of Israel have just entered into the promised land, and now God is putting them through the final preparations before leading them into their first battle against the enemy, which, of course, would be the Battle of Jericho. But first, he makes them set up camp in a place called Gilgal, a place that we've been looking at over the last few weeks. Gilgal, as we've already said, would become very important to the children of Israel in the weeks and months to come because it would become their base of operations, their headquarters from which they will launch their attacks against the enemy. But right now it becomes a place of teaching, a place of learning for them, because God is going to use this place and is using it, as we've been already looking at this study. God is going to use this place to teach them some very important lessons before leading them into victory. You know, Alan Redpath, a tremendous man of God, in his commentary in the book of Joshua, he gives six lessons that God is uh, trying to teach us at Gilgal. Six things that we can glean from the passage that we need to learn to apply into our lives then if we're going to expect to be victorious over the enemies that we face. Now, I'd like to take uh, Alan Redpath's six main points, but I'll add my, my own commentary. Well, as we've already seen, Gilgal was a place of remembrance. Secondly, a place of resurrection. Thirdly, it was a place of renunciation. And number four, Gilgal was a place of restoration. Look at verse 10. Now the children of Israel camped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho. Now up until this point, Israel had only kept the Passover twice in 40 years. Once the night before God led them out of Egypt, and then about a year later in the wilderness of Sinai, as recorded in Numbers chapter 9. And apart from that, we have no other record in the Old Testament where they kept the Passover at any time during their 40 years wandering in the wilderness. And again, I think that this signified that they had turned their backs on God. Remember now, circumcision and Passover were connected. What do you mean? Well, as we've already studied, God said nobody, whether Jew or Gentile, can eat the Passover who is uncircumcised. So you have to be circumcised. The fact that they didn't circumcise their male children in the wilderness also indicated they weren't planning on keeping the Passover. And again, they turned their backs on God, on, they turned their backs on God because they were probably angry with God. I mean, have you ever been in a place where you've done something stupid and reaped the consequences, but now you're angry at God? Well, you could have got me out of it, Lord. Other people have done it, and they didn't, you know, you didn't let them go through this. Look, when we disobey God, and we have consequences that we bring upon ourselves, it's not God's fault. We just got to tough it out, repent, and deal with the consequences, right? I mean, when a young teenage girl gets herself pregnant, and she's a Christian, we'll say, and she knows she's done wrong, and she comes before the Lord, and she confesses her sin, God forgives her. But does he wipe that child from her womb? No. Now, as a young teenage girl, when God would have wanted her to wait until she was married and a little older to prepare her mentally and all for the responsibilities of raising children, now she's going to have to give up some of her teenage years. She can't be a, a happy-go-lucky teenage gal that can just enjoy the dances and school uh, activities. Now she's got to stay home and watch a child. Those are the consequences. Now, can God make it a blessing? Of course, kids are a blessing. But the consequences still remain. And it's not right for us to turn around and blame God or be resentful for God. With God. Now, Israel, I think, was resentful toward the Lord. 
They were frustrated. They had to wander for all these years in the wilderness. And I think it was their way of saying, look, we don't want to be your people anymore. We're tired of this. We don't want to forget the covenant. We don't want to be your people. And yet God didn't forsake them as evident as was evident in the fact that the Shekinah glory, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night continued to lead them, continued to go before them, and eventually led them into the promised land, which he had promised to give to Abraham in the covenant God made with Abraham and his descendants. And I love that because God has made an everlasting, unconditional covenant with us through Christ, just like he made with Abraham for the Jews. And even though they forsook God, God didn't forsake them. And even though sometimes we forsake God, what does that mean? Well, when I say forsake, I don't mean renounce our faith and walk away from God. I'm just talking about sometimes Christians, you know, uh, maybe they're brand new baby Christians and for a while they walk with God and then, you know, the pull of the world is still very strong upon them and they walk away for a while. Or maybe they um, are angry with God because He didn't come through for them. He didn't heal the the family member who was sick or He let them down in some way and so they walk away. Maybe sometimes they're just feeling, you know what, I can't do it. I just don't have any strength anymore. Um, I'm feeling discouraged and depressed, and I, I don't think I can walk with God anymore. So, what, Lord, just go on without me. Even when we think those things, our God is never going to leave us. In fact, wasn't it in Hebrews 13, verse 5, where the writer said, quoting the Old Testament, applying it to us, he said, where God promised, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God made a covenant with us, an everlasting covenant. And even though we're unfaithful at times, he remains faithful and so upon entering the land the first thing he had them do was circumcise their men and young boys and then keep the passover meal which was a way of of reconfirming now the covenant he made with them this is a new day i can't give you the promised land until you renew the covenant because i only made the promise to abraham as my covenant people and so if you are going to be my covenant people and inherit this land, you've got to be circumcised and keep the Passover. Now, the Passover was a meal that God had given His covenant people Israel to observe, to listen, remind them of how He had redeemed them out of the land of bondage through the blood of the Lamb. Why don't you turn to Exodus chapter 12? And this is familiar ground, obviously. We're not really learning anything new. But this is one of the lessons that God is driving home at Gilgal. And the Passover was that meal that God had given the Jews after they entered into a covenant with Him. Now remember, circumcision came first, and then the Passover meal. And the meal reminded them of how they were now the covenant people of God. How that God had delivered them now out of Egypt, the bondage, the heartache, all the slavery. And it brought them into a good land through the blood of the Lamb. Well, we read in Exodus chapter 12, verse 14 talking about the first Passover. So this day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Now, today, and the Passover evolved a little bit. The first Passover, they weren't even allowed to eat uh, sitting down. They had to eat standing up, right? Because you had to eat and go, all right? Uh, today, of course, the Jewish people, they sit and for a family, an Orthodox Jewish family today, uh, at one point in the Passover meal, uh, the youngest child is supposed to say to the father, Father, 
what makes this night different from every any other night? And that gives the father, the Jewish father, an opportunity to recite the story of how God had brought his people out of the bondage of slavery. All the tears and all the heartache. In fact, during the Passover meal, they take the, um, the parsley, dip it into the, to the salt water, reminding them of their tears in Egypt and how that God delivered us from that bondage. How? By a strong, mighty arm and by the blood of the lamb, which we killed the Passover lamb, placed the blood on the doorpost and lentil of the house, and the angel of death that night passed over the houses with the blood of the lamb on their lentil and doorposts, and then we were led out of Egypt by God the next day. So the Passover was a memorial meal, a meal of remembrance. However, as the years went by, and this is important, as the years went by, it also came to symbolize the oneness and the fellowship that they had with God himself. The oneness and the fellowship also became a part of the whole idea of the Passover, how that God had taken his people out from among the world, Egypt, and had taken them to himself as a, a covenant people. Now, for us in the New Testament, it was during the Passover meal in the upper room that Jesus gave a new memorial meal to the people of God, the church. We call it the Lord's Supper. It also is a meal which reminds us how the Lord redeemed us out of the bondage of sin and Satan and the world, the world, of course, Egypt being a type of the world, how God redeemed us out of the bondage of the world through the blood of the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. And, of course, because it also symbolizes the oneness and fellowship that we have with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, that's why we also call it communion, which means oneness. Now, if you're still in Exodus 12, I want you to look at verses 3 to 5. This is in preparation for them eating the first Passover meal. And God is instructing them on how they were to take a lamb. Let me pick it up in verse 3. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth day of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons, According to each man's need, you shall make your account for the lamb. Verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now it's interesting, and I don't believe it's any mistake here of this progression. When I read my Bible, I read it like a detective. I'm looking for clues, all right? I'm always looking for little things that, that kind of stand out. Sometimes they're more obvious than other things. But I'm always reading my Bible looking for things like little treasures or little, you know, things the Holy Spirit has placed there to give me insight into certain things. And I don't think it's any mistake to progression here. I think it's deliberate. You notice that we see a lamb and then the lamb and then your lamb. And I think that that speaks of all the people in the world and what they believe about Jesus Christ. Many people in this world think that Jesus Christ is a lamb. He's a Savior, one of many roads that lead to God. Others say, no, it's more than that. He's not a lamb. He's the lamb. He's the only way that leads to God. He said, you know, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. So he's the lamb. Well, that's great, all right? Jesus is not just a lamb, one of many roads. He is the lamb, the only way to God. But even believing that will do you no good unless you take it to the third level and make him what? Your lamb. 
where you accept him as your Lord and your Savior. And I see that here, that God is trying to communicate to us something through this. Of course, Jesus Christ, many centuries later, as he came to John to be baptized, John says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But you must make him your Lamb. Receive him as your personal Lord and Savior. And again, just as the children of Israel couldn't eat the Passover meal, which spoke of communion, until they were first circumcised. Remember again, Exodus 12, 48. Nobody who was uncircumcised can eat the Passover meal, so they had to be circumcised first. What is this saying to us spiritually? What is the lesson for us? Well, I think it's this. If the Lord's Supper represents the memorial meal for the people of the New Covenant, and it represents the communion that we've entered into through the blood of Christ with God, we can't fully enjoy that communion without us being spiritually circumcised. We can't fully partake in all that communion means to us spiritually if we're not spiritually circumcised. And we've looked at this. Circumcision, from a physical standpoint, again, was simply the cutting away of something unclean. And it really represented, it symbolized, really, that God wanted these people to be holy. They were his covenant people now. And so circumcision, from a spiritual standpoint, represents the cutting away of the flesh life. What is the flesh life? Well, it speaks of our fallen nature. Before we got saved, we all lived according to the, we walked according to the flesh. The flesh or our fallen nature controlled us. It dominated us. All we thought about was the lust of the flesh and how we could satisfy them. Some more than others, of course, but all of us, to some degree, that's where we lived. Okay, that's all we knew. And along with that whole flesh life, the life of, of the old nature, well, it's a selfish thing, right? I mean, the fallen nature uh, is very selfish and self-centered. All that it wants is to be gratified. And so it's very important to understand that once we give our hearts to Christ, well, God wants to circumcise us. Our hearts, not our bodies, we read out of Colossians, I think, last time, where Paul says, you know, we have been circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. The spiritual circumcision. Once we give our heart to Christ, Jesus moves in. And he circumcises our hearts. He sets us apart, in a sense, positionally, where we are now his people. But practically, we have to live a circumcised life. We'll talk about that more in a moment. Let me just say this, though. What does it mean practically we talk about living a circumcised life? In other words, you know, in the wilderness, they were uncircumcised in body and heart, the Jews I'm speaking of, and therefore they lived a life of carnality, of selfishness, always murmuring, complaining, uh, you know, never satisfied with what God did. They were always wanting something more. He gave them bread from heaven. They wanted meat uh, to eat, you know. Uh, it was just one big pity party the whole way through the wilderness, all right? And, um, you know, Moses got tired of it after a while and said, God, you know, these are not my kids. Why am I have to put up with all these people? They're your kids, you know. It was a frustrating time. And once they entered the promised land, which represented the life of the Spirit, they had to be circumcised. Because it signified a consecrated life now was about to begin. How does God do that today? How does he cut away from us spiritually now? How does he circumcise us? And it's an ongoing process, by the way. How does he do it today in our lives, spiritually speaking? Well, I think the cutting comes from conviction, where the Holy Spirit cuts us to the heart about the sin in our life. Now, believers I'm talking about. The removal of the, of the 
flesh or the filth of the flesh comes as we confess the sin. The Spirit convicts us. We confess the sin, which means it's now removed. And that leads to consecration, which means holiness. So that's spiritually, I think, how God constantly is circumcising our lives that we live holy lives. Through conviction, then through confession, and then, of course, leading to consecration. But just as circumcision preceded Passover in Israel's history, I believe the lesson that the Lord is trying to teach us here is that it's through renunciation of our flesh. Listen to me now. This is the Gilgal was also a place of renunciation. And what God is teaching us here is that renunciation of the flesh is necessary. It's a necessary prerequisite to full fellowship and communion with God in the spiritual sense. Now, this is obvious, but it's being overlooked by many today. That renouncing the old life is absolutely critical if you're going to walk in the newness of the Spirit, right? That's, it, it's so basic that everyone should understand it. And yet today, we don't see that in the church. We see a lot of churches trying to tell people, or maybe they're just flat out telling them, that, you know what, you're saved by grace. It's all about grace. It doesn't matter really how you live because you're saved by grace, and so on and so forth. And maybe they don't put it exactly that way, but that's definitely the intent of the teaching. You know, I just started reading a book on the life of uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And he was the one who coined the phrase, cheap grace. Cheap grace grace thinking that just because you're saved by grace that gives you license to sin and to live like an unbeliever and the bible says that those people who think that because they have said a prayer walked an aisle filled out a card and now they're they're saved they think doesn't matter how they live because they're saved by grace uh i think those people are going to be in for a horrifying reality someday when they stand before Jesus Christ and he says to them, I never knew you. Grace is never cheap. It cost God the life of his son. And if we take it that casually and we cheapen God's grace by living openly in sin, guess what? We trample the blood of the Son of God under our feet and count the blood of the Holy Covenant an unclean thing, and I think that only an unbeliever who is passing themselves off as a believer can get away with doing that. I don't think a true Christian can do that. Because the Spirit of God lives inside of our hearts, and guess what? If you are living in sin, you ought to be miserable. And if you're not miserable, and if, you don't have any con if you're living day to day without conviction, even though you're living in sin, guess what? You're not a believer. Because nobody who is a true believer with the Holy Spirit inside of them can live habitually in sin and not have the Holy Spirit convict them every single day until they get them, their life right with God. So only unbelievers masquerading as Christians can talk about cheap grace. Grace isn't cheap. Those of us who are true believers, we know that. And we know that we're saved by grace. But we don't want to sin. That doesn't make us want to sin more. It makes us want to sin less. Because of all that God has done given to us freely. And John put his finger on this in his first epistle when he said, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So a lot of people who are walking in darkness and going to church and think they're right with God, and I got news for them. They better get on their knees quick and repent. Seriously. Because there's no way you can live like that and be a true Christian. And, of course, our communion and fellowship with the Lord is a, an essential prerequisite to any kind of victory. Remember now, 
before God led them into their first battle, what did he do? He has them circumcised again, and then they eat the Passover meal, which again signified now their communion and fellowship with God was fully restored. They were again the covenant people of God. That was a necessary prerequisite if they were going to have victory over the enemy. In fact, turn to John chapter 15, the Gospel of John. Talking about communion, talking about fellowship, which allows the power of God to flow from God into our lives to give us victory. Jesus gave a very simple analogy of this, a metaphor. In John 15, starting in verse 1, Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Verse 4, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Fellowship is essential for victory. Fellowship and communion with the Lord, I'm saying. But fellowship, practically speaking now, is an ongoing thing as we abide in Christ. If we get into sin, we disconnect ourselves from the flow of God's strength, God's power. doesn't mean we're unbelievers now. If a Christian sins, fellowship with, with the Lord is broken. They're not unsaved now. It just means, though, that they're no longer drawing the strength and the, all that the God uh, wants to give them through the flow of His Spirit. They sever themselves from the flow of God's Spirit. They dry up spiritually. It's important that you constantly examine yourself to see, am I feeling dry? Am I feeling, you know, um, fruitless? Do I feel like the Spirit of God is just not flowing through my life? Well, why is that? You begin to examine yourself to see if you're walking in sin in some way. Now, if you do decide, look, you have been involved in some things that are not right and you need to repent. Once you do repent, confessing that sin, repent of it, your fellowship is restored again on a practical level. And therefore, the power of God begins to flow again through your life and victory returns. Even as John said in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, he said, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All right. So Gilgal was a place of remembrance. Gilgal was a place of resurrection. Gilgal was a place of renunciation. Gilgal was a place of restoration. And we'll finish with this one today. Gilgal, number five, was a place of realization. For this, look at verse 11 and 12. Verses 11 and 12. And they ate of the produce of the land on the day after the Passover, unleavened bread and parched grain on the very same day. Then the manna ceased on the day after. They had eaten the produce of the land. And the children of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate the food of the land of Canaan that year. Manna was wilderness food, folks. Manna was wilderness food. First of all, it was bland. And secondly, they were totally helpless to provide it for themselves. They needed God every day to feed it to them. In other words, they were spiritual babies in the wilderness, and manna was spiritual baby food. But after they entered Canaan came the realization that they were no longer spiritual babies. They had grown up now, and God was not going to feed them anymore. Now, listen, they had to feed themselves. That's a mark of maturity, isn't it? I can always tell when somebody is still in the wilderness, so to speak, spiritually, 
or if they've really entered into the life of the Spirit, because they're telling me how they're studying the Scriptures, and God is showing them things. They're, they've gotten some, some study materials. They've got themselves a good concordance, maybe a topical Bible. They've got themselves some commentaries, maybe a, a Greek or Hebrew word study. And they're opening the Scriptures, and they're feeding themselves. That's always the mark of maturity. Now look, it's not wrong to sit and hear somebody teach you the Word. I thank God for those of you here tonight, because uh, that's my ministry. But I don't want you just to be fed by me. I mean, it's great. I list, love to listen to good teachers. But I can tell you the truth. Nothing is more exciting than getting the Word out and studying it for yourself and seeing things that maybe nobody else told you, but the Holy Spirit is showing you. There's been many times as I'm preparing a study for Sunday, what I do is, what I, as I prepare that study, I'm really teaching myself. I mean, I'm thinking about you guys, but really my first priority is to study the Word so that I can be fed. And as I dig into it, and I'm always praying, Lord, open my understanding here. Show me what you want to teach me. Uh, Lord, give me insight into this passage. And as I pray about it and meditate on it and dig things out, suddenly I'm seeing treasures emerge. And I get excited. And I write these things down and present them to you, and hopefully you get excited. But Jesus said the, the farmer or the one who feeds others must first be a partaker of the what? Of the fruit. So I've got to feed myself before I can feed you guys. But I can just tell you that if I only limited myself to hearing other people teach the word as much of a blessing as that is, I, I would be cheating myself out of the joy of knowing how to feed myself in the word of God. Maturity is not God spoon-feeding you anymore. It's you digging out the Word yourself and, and digging out the principles and learning what God has said. You shouldn't rely on anybody to feed you because God has given you everything you need through the Holy Spirit to feed yourself. He will open your understanding to the Scriptures. If you read them, meditate on them, pray about it, and seek God, He'll open your understanding to these things. But mature Christians can and should want to feed themselves. Turn to Hebrews chapter 5. In chapter 5 of the book of Hebrews, starting in verse 12, we read, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the, the first principles of the oracles or the word of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he or she is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have, have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So a lot of Christians who have been Christians for many years who are still needing the milk of the word and have not gone on to solid food. And I've met them. Yeah, God love them, okay? They're still sucking on the bottle, and they've been a Christian for 15 or 20 years. Why is that? Well, there's a lot of reasons. But it's not pretty. You know, I mean, those of you who have had kids, there's no greater joy than bringing that little baby girl or boy home, putting them in the crib, and watching them do nothing but just roll around and make sweet little cute faces and drink the bottle. And, you know, and, and as my kids were little, you know, and, and they would be in the crib, you know, just as infants and all, and... And uh, they would be feeding on their... You'd love to go in there, just peek in there, just to love to look at them. So beautiful, right? 
You expect an infant child to behave that way. If the kid was 15 or 20 years old still in a crib sucking on a bottle, that's not good anymore. It's no longer cute. It's, it's sad. It's pathetic. And why is that? Why do some people stay perpetual spiritual infants while others grow? Look, physical growth we have no control over. As long as we eat pretty decent, get our sleep, we're going to grow. Spiritual growth, that's definitely our deal. And I've seen Christians who have been Christians for two years that are stronger than Christians who have been Christians for 20 years. Why is that? Because they want to grow, number one. They take it seriously. They love the Word. They love to be in the Word. They love to hear the Word. They love to read it, to study it, to meditate on it, to memorize it. They're doing all the things God has said to do if they're going to grow and be healthy. And guess what? They grow quickly because they want to grow. Other people, I don't know, I guess they just want to be saved. I'm saved, that's all I care about. Well, it's kind of sad, but okay. If that's where you are. And so after 20 years of being a Christian, you talk to them, and they're still asking you about the most basic principles of the Christian faith. Tell me about this again. Tell me about that. It's just the same basic stuff, stuff they ought to know by now. Now, I don't mind telling them again. It's a little sad, though. They got to explain things that a new Christian should have learned in the first six months of their faith. You got to still explain it to somebody who's been a Christian for 20 years. But it is what it is. Some people just don't want to grow. And so they live in a wilderness all their Christian life. Just like Israel walked for so many years in a literal wilderness where they ate manna. They had to be spoon fed by God every day. Manna, once again, was wilderness food. It was bland. It was boring. It was monotonous. There's only so many ways you can cook and bake manna. And after a while, it got really monotonous. No wonder they wanted leeks and onions and garlic and meat. But now they've come into the promised land. That speaks of the life of the Spirit, maturity. And right away, God begins to feed them or tells them to start feeding themselves now from the produce of the land, and immediately the manna stops. See, this signified they entered into a new level of relationship with God. No longer spiritual infants, babies, now mature believers. And you know what? The promised land was not like the wilderness, all right? The promised land was, was the life of the Spirit. It was marked by excitement, variety, freshness, diversity of experiences. Just like the Word of God, when you really want to know it, and you pick it up and you begin to really digest it, really feed on it, not like milk, but as meat, you begin to see things, wow. And God begins to show you things. It becomes rich. You don't need anybody to feed you anymore. You don't really want anybody to feed you. Sure, you listen to a message and all, but you want to feed yourself. But I want you to notice in verse 11, of Joshua 5, that it says that they ate unleavened bread. Listen, the day after the Passover. Now, this was in accordance to the feast of the Lord that God gave to them in Leviticus chapter 23. The Passover took place on the 14th of Nisan, the Jewish month of Nisan. And then another feast started on the 15th, right after Passover. The feast of unleavened bread started on the 15th of Nisan, ran for seven consecutive days. The Feast of Unleavened Bread. In the scriptures, leaven is always synonymous with sin, with evil, with corruption of some kind. As you read your Bible, you realize that leaven is never a good thing. Paul said, 
a little leaven leavens the whole lump. He was talking to a church now. And he was saying leaven is, he was calling sin leaven. And he was saying that, look, a little sin, if not dealt with, will spread through a person's life or a church until everything has been corrupted. Now, what is the significance of the Feast of Unleavened Bread to us as Christians, right? Well, we don't, as Christians, really celebrate these feasts, although you can. I mean, they're beautiful symbols of Christ and what he's done for us. But they do have a spiritual application. Passover speaks of redemption, right? In fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 called Jesus Christ our Passover. Speaking of salvation, right? If Passover speaks of salvation, what does the Feast of Unleavened Bread speak of? If leaven is sin, then unleaven, an unleavened feast should speak of what? Holiness. It should speak of sanctification. Remember in the scriptures, the number seven is the number of what? Completeness. Thank you. Thank you for not saying holiness. Because a lot of people think, well, seven is the number of holiness. No, it isn't. Because in the book of Revelation, I think the the dragon has seven heads. Okay? Uh, That's not holy, folks. Seven in Scripture signifies completeness, right? So here's the lesson God wants to teach us as believers. Once you get saved, you are to immediately, Passover, you are to immediately then enter into the Feast of Unleavened Bread, you might say, which speaks of sanctification. Seven, complete. You are to be completely sanctified. In other words, we don't get saved And then five years down the road, say, oh, maybe I'll get serious now and start really trying to live a holy life. God says, no way. My will is once you receive Jesus Christ, the Passover lamb, you are to immediately start living a new life, a sanctified life, a holy life. See, that's what God wanted to communicate to the children of Israel once he took them out of Egypt. And then he had them stand by the base of Mount Sinai where he proposed a covenant with them. He was telling them, look. I've redeemed you out of Egypt, now you belong to me. How you lived when you were once slaves in Egypt is one thing. But now I've taken you out, I've redeemed you through the blood of the Lamb, and now I want you to be my holy people. Be holy as I am holy, says the Lord. You're going to to start living a new kind of life. What kind, Lord? An unleavened life. And the same is true for us today. There should be no space between a person's salvation and and them entering into a a sanctified life now. On the one hand, once you receive Christ, you 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 enter into positional sanctification. What do I mean? Well, the moment you receive Christ, he takes you out of the world, places you in the body of Christ, now you're separated. Sanctification really means separation. Holy, same Greek word, hagias, same word for holy, for sanctified. It's a word that means separated. Once you give your heart to Christ, you were taken from the world invisibly, miraculously placed in the body of Christ, you were positionally sanctified. But we live not only in the positional, but in the practical, right? And so for us who are believers, God tells us now, now that you belong to me, be holy as I am holy, says the Lord. In other words, how you lived in the old life when you were in bondage to the world, Egypt, how you lived back then before you were my people, that's over with. Now you belong to me. I've redeemed you out of that. And I expect you now to begin to live a holy life, a separated life, a morally pure life, a life of obedience, and so on, an unleavened life. 
See, one of the great problems that Moses had with the children of Israel, and we'll finish with this, one of the great problems that Moses had throughout the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, the main problem he had with the children of Israel during all those years of wandering was that they constantly wanted to go back to the leeks and the onions and the garlics of Egypt. It was a lot easier for the Lord to get them out of Egypt than it was for him to get Egypt out of them. Let me think about that for a minute. It was a lot easier for the Lord to get them out of Egypt than it was for him to get Egypt out of them. The same is true with us. It's a lot easier for the Lord to take us out of the world. That's salvation, right? Salvation is the miracle of a moment. Think about that. You give your heart to Jesus Christ, that moment you are redeemed. You are taken out of the world and put into the body of Christ. You are now God's special people, separated from the world, right? Salvation is the miracle of a moment. Sanctification, that's the hard work of a lifetime. It's a lot easier for God to take us out of the world than it is for him to take the world out of us. I'm not saying anything's hard for God. I'm just saying it takes a lot longer, right? It takes a lot longer to sanctify somebody, to every day work with them through conviction and through their confession, repentance, examining themselves, staying in the Word, seeing what God has said, seeing the life He wants them to live, looking at their own life, saying, well, I'm not really measuring up here. Okay, Lord, you're convicting me. I want to confess this. I want strength to, to, to walk away from these old sins of the past. That takes a lifetime to be transformed into the, into the image of Christ. And we get discouraged along the way sometimes, don't we? But as we said many times before, He who has begun a good work in us is going to see it through all the way to completion. And no, we're not all that we want to be yet, but we're not all that we once were. And amen to that. So it is a process, right? It's an ongoing process. And that's why we have spent so much time dealing from chapter 1 verse 10 of this book through chapter 5 verse 15 it's all been one section the preparation for victory it's taken a long time in a lot of studies in this book to bring us to a place that we're now ready to see them fight their first battle and the lessons that God was trying to teach us through all these weeks that we've been looking at Joshua is this. There's a lot of things that have to happen first before you're going to experience victory. The greatest work that God has to do in our lives is in us, not through us. Because that's where the real struggle comes. It's in us. We still wrestle with the flesh and the devil who wants to use our flesh against us. And the world that he's designed to stimulate the flesh in us. I mean, it's mostly an internal... Spiritual warfare is really mostly an, an, an internal warfare. And that's why we've taken so much time looking at these chapters. Because there's so much that we have to do as far as our heart is concerned. As far as our mindset is concerned. And walking with the Lord every day in consecration. You know, All of that was necessary groundwork that had to be laid before we can really understand what it means to have victory in the Christian life. Which, by the way, if you nail down all the principles we've already learned in this book up to this point, I think victory almost comes like a byproduct. Just like Jesus said, if you abide in me and stay connected to me, the fruit will be a byproduct. You won't have to worry about the fruit. It'll just happen naturally. I kind of think that victory will almost happen naturally as long as you abide in Christ and do what he has told you to do and stay close to him. Now, the final lesson of, of Gilgal, we're going to save for next week. 
And I don't want you to miss this because the final lesson of Gilgal is so important. It not only determines whether or not a Christian is victorious, but look, listen, it also determines whether or not they're even a Christian. This last lesson at Gilgal, I think, is one of the most important. Because not only will it determine whether or not a person who is a Christian will have victory, I think it gives insights into whether or not they're really a Christian at all. And so we'll look at that next time. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for hidden treasures, blessed principles, Lord, that are buried here for our learning. We thank you, Father, that by your grace and spirit we can dig them out and learn and grow and feed upon them. Give us grace, Lord, to desire to grow with all our hearts, to not waste time, to not look to others to feed us, but that we would be students of the word, hungry and feeding ourselves, Lord. We just thank you, Father, for the lessons of Gilgal and all that they teach us about victory. And we just pray that you would continue to show us, Lord, as we study this book, all the other lessons that you want us to learn that will lead us in the life of victory, a fruitful life, a glorious life, a life of blessing, a life where you are honored and glorified. So, Lord, we thank you. Father, we ask now all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.